You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am your colorful host, Abraham. And I am your monochromatic co-host, Shane. Hey, Shane. Yeah. If you can see the shirt that I'm wearing, it should be making you think and do things. (laughs) Not because of its message, but because of its color. I would think that based on the color of your shirt, there's some mystery and some power related to the message that you're trying to impart. Maybe a little bit of fear. Maybe fear. Fear's in there, right? Also, maybe that you listen to Slayer. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Did you know that... Actually, let's let's if you're listening, wherever you're listening to this, at the time that you're listening to it, see if you can notice some of those colors around you and know that someone is trying to control your mind with those colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this isn't like a hollow earth conspiracy. This is a thing that people believe in science somewhere. Yep. Kind of. More or less. Yeah. <laughs> in a manner of speaking. So yeah, if you ever if you see the color red and you're worried about how it makes you feel, you blame your reptilian overlords. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the question we gotta ask is if certain colors can in fact make you do believe or think or i guess react in a certain way like is that possible yeah i mean that's really what we're trying to accomplish today because the you know the topic is going to be color psychology so you know when you start thinking about this one thing i started noticing as i was doing the research on this was that every fast food restaurant that i could think of was red like real quick off the top of your head let's go ahead like you got mcdonald's you've got wendy's chick-fil-a Hardee's, all those places have red somewhere in their logos. Even Whataburger and In and Out, like everything I could think of, had that color or at least some variation of the color. Except for Burger King. Burger King is mostly blue, and that's probably why it's failing as miserably as it is. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> who's even heard of a Burger King? Not me. Yeah, not anymore. At least the real question is, who's ever heard of a clean Burger King? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We're taking. We don't take very many hard stances on this, but Burger King is the one that we're gonna. That's the hill we're gonna die on. Indeed. I take it back. No, they have the Impossible Whopper. So they started doing plant-based stuff. So, you know, good on them, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So, Abraham, how does the color blue make you feel? Like maybe I want a giant drum to pound on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Blue man. <laughs> ah, yes. That makes more sense. I was like, I don't know where that's going. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think about it. I mean, mostly I feel pretty ambivalent. I like looking at a clear blue sky. That's nice. Yeah, I imagine where you're at, it's probably always nice and clear for the most part. Yeah, few clouds, no rain. It's the opposite here. It's it's always rainy Sometimes when Oregon and California are on fire, our our sky is mostly gray with smoke. And it's hard to breathe. I don't like that. No, it's terrible. So if you hadn't figured it out yet, like I said, we're talking about color psychology today. So our primary questions today are going to be asking about whether colors actually change our behavior. Can we use colors to influence others? And is color psychology even a real thing? I feel ready. Feel ready. I feel good. I feel colorful. I'm wearing a couple different colors today. So I had a splash of orange today in my in my wardrobe. So it should be good. And there's there's some colors around me, I think. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this isn't like some like episode of The Giver. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Perfect. So anyway, when we're talking about color psychology, this is the study of how colors and shades of colors or hues influence or predict human behavior. So fairly straightforward. It's just. If you got certain colors, what is that going to make people do? 
Right. And the idea is that any of these colors, these hues or different shades can influence just about everything, including your perception about a product. It can enhance emotions. It can even shape how you taste food, supposedly. That's kind of an interesting thing. Like, I guess maybe like, I don't know, I guess I don't eat blue food. I guess that would definitely have like an impact on me. Like if I saw something blue, I'd be like, I don't want to taste that. You don't like blueberries? Well, they're like purple, though. Okay, that's fair. But I do love blueberries. I do love them, actually. So thank you. I I appreciate you. (laughs) (laughs) taking me to task on that (laughs) apparently it's what i do anyway these are principles or theories or maybe hypotheses is a better word for it that are based on color theory and this includes identifying the primary secondary and tertiary colors as part of key behavioral influencers and essentially the idea here again is what is being proposed is that colors predict behavior so Assuming you can put the right colors in the right place, that should then predict the kind of behavior that the person who sees those colors will then engage in. Right. And this is not a new thing. This isn't something that kind of came up in like, you know, the 70s when people were singing Age of Aquarius or any sort of like things like that. (laughs) Like this is a fairly old practice. And you'll see like some some evidence of this in ancient Egypt where holistic approaches to examining color they were used in relation to mood. So they started looking at how color and mood were related. So it was originally believed that things like the color red increased circulation and and actually stimulated the body and the mind and yellow purified the body and helped with nerves. And if you combine those, I think you get orange, which increases energy and is associated also with fast food. And apparently in one of the sources I saw associated with board games so you oh. think i would like orange a lot more than i do hmm. yeah orange is a crappy color <laughs> <I don't, laughs> not to not not to say people who <laughs> orange is their favorite color this episode's gonna raise a lot of hell good on you for loving orange it's just not my favorite color and it's someone else's favorite color and that's fine preferences are perfectly okay blue has a soothing effect or they, they supposedly had a soothing effect purple resolved skin problems in black signaled life and rebirth which is the opposite of what anybody in Norway who listens to black metal would think that it signaled. Yeah, death and unbirth. <laughs> yeah, but mostly this sound. I don't know what unbirth is, but I don't want to speculate, so let's just move on. <laughs> One place that this goes back frequently is talking about Isaac Newton. This is back in the 1600s, 1666. Isaac Newton discovered that when light, just pure white light, was filtered through a prism that it would separate out into the colors and he discovered how the color spectrum was then thought to be organized from red orange yellow green blue indigo and violet if i'm, if I'm remembering correctly yep. and interestingly i did hear some recent i think it was a podcast or i read some research or something that the reason that there were seven was because seven was considered to be like a holy or perfect number and so just kind of threw indigo in there, even though it's not really a color that actually exists in the color spectrum. <laughs> it's just sort of saying as you bleed from blue into violet, then we're going to say we're going to call that indigo. You know, it's funny to think that thanks to Isaac Newton, we've got Pink Floyd logos everywhere. So, yes. Thank you, Isaac Newton. Where would we be without you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Roger Waters would be lost without you. So. When we talk about this idea of color psychology, like this is a, an ever present thing. You'll see this kind of discussed throughout the ages. So Carl Jung or Young, or Jung, or however you want to pronounce it. I'm going to pronounce it however I want to, because we're on the podcast and people are not. (laughs) I'm a little feisty today, I apologize. It's quoted as saying, colors are the mother tongue of the subconscious, and eventually moved to developing art therapy. And then you see kind of using color as a palette or a, a way to kind of help 
deliver some kind of intervention within this art therapy space. Carl Jung actually used that as part of like identifying some conscious processes. So in his iteration of this was the idea that people would paint and that the painting that they did revealed their subconscious. Was that the idea? That's, I guess, the idea. The thing with art therapy is there's not a lot of really great technical or scientific support to back it. See, I feel like I would have trouble distinguishing between whether you would pursue the shapes or the images that they created versus the colors that they used, or maybe it's all of those things together. Unclear. I think that's the fun thing about like anything that came out of psychology around that time is the idea of interpretation. If it was like, I see that you draw a monster that is killing you and everyone that you love, but you drew it in blue, which means you're happy about this. <laughs> right. Like, cause blue's your favorite color. So is that you? Like, I feel like there's just a lot of space left in that. You know, I had a, when I was taking my assessment class in my psych degree, we had a teacher who was really big on projective assessments in the Rorschach. And, and yeah. he, even he was like, this isn't super useful in the real world. Uh, just thinks they're really fun, huh? Yeah. He like, he's like, the slides are cool. It's really fun to kind of like get people to talk about stuff, but like the tool itself is not like, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't really use like, even though he really liked it, he like, I, he's like, I like it as a means to get more information and to be able to discuss with folks. But He's like, the test itself is not super useful. Now that you really pointed out, it's it does raise for me the issue that I think is really fascinating to discuss, which is there is, I think, some fascination that is really interesting, intriguing to people, maybe is the word I'm looking for, in how people respond to ambiguous stimuli. And seeing that as, because I mean, I think color psychology is exactly the same way. I think the idea of like subliminal messaging and, as you said, the projective assessments are all based on the same thing as like what do people do when things are ambiguous and that's just so fascinating that they do it when it's ambiguous and i guess i've never found that particularly interesting but I, there's something that seems to captivate a lot of people's attention about that you know honestly and even in behaviorism we tackle that right we tackle that from the idea of learning histories like so if somebody sees something nebulous it's all just relational frames yeah yeah i think whatever history one has with those shapes and setups it's a ghost. <laughs> There's so many ghosts. No. I just think so many blobs would just be ghosts. From now on, if you're if you ever go take the Rorschach, everything's a ghost. It's like that's a ghost. Those are ghosts fighting. Those are two ghosts. Yeah. This is a ghost of a butterfly. That's a ghost making a deposit at the bank. <laughs> that is an anti ghost. Oh, fair. That's a pre ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Can we start calling humans pre ghosts? That's the best name. There, there are over seven, seven billion pre ghosts on the planet right now. Oh, man. Love, <laughs> love it. Love it. Okay. If you remember, a long time ago, we were talking about color therapy. A long time ago in this episode, <laughs> this is described as an alternative therapy, as, <laughs> like alternative medicine also known as chromopathy, chromotherapy, or color healing. And in this therapy, you, the therapist, I guess, is going to use colors and their frequencies to heal physical and emotional problems that exist within the, the body of their patient. You'll see this a lot. It relies a on a foundation of balancing chakras or energy centers. And so, you know, you'll see this in a lot of different holistic or alternative medicine approaches, this idea that the, the chakras have to align, they're, they're related to certain colors. So it, it, it becomes this, you know, on the surface, when we start talking about this idea of color therapy and like how colors influence people, it has this really pervasive influence on different like healing processes or different perspectives on healing, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I think my tendency definitely is to be kind of snarky toward things that seem on their surface to be 
pseudoscience-y and sort of the fluffy nebulous concepts in here. And I think it's worth pointing out, and we will get into this more in this discussion, but it is worth pointing out that like a lot of people do have legitimate experiences from these things. And even if we don't necessarily agree with the, the total idea of chakras, the fact that someone might find some utility in something as banal as color therapy, that's a pretty cheap, non-invasive way to go about doing it. I mean, I don't know how expensive it is, but ideally, you know, if, if it's something as simple as surrounding yourself with a particular color, then it's accessible to a lot of people. And so, you know, more power to you, I guess. Maybe the theme of this is that we're looking at this from a scientific perspective and, and maybe taking it from the approach of like, is there evidence to support this? But if there are moments where like somebody finds this helpful and it's not harmful, it's not financially harmful, it's not physically harmful, if it's something like that, then go for it. Like if you think that the color blue is helpful for you and therapeutic for you, then use that. That is easy to use. But if you find that like, I don't know, bleach therapy is helpful, maybe don't do that because it's probably not helpful and probably more dangerous and harmful. Yeah, definitely always worth weighing the risks versus the benefits. Yeah. So... Whitfield and Wiltshire in 1990 uh, came up with the basic principles of color psychology. So while this has been kind of this long lasting evolution in human approaches to healing and to addressing different ailments, it really wasn't until about 1990 where the, the core principles were developed. And so to understand color psychology, one must understand the general principles that dictate the mechanisms of color psychology. So that's what we're going to talk about now is, is the mechanisms by which color psychology is supposedly supposed to work. Now, of course, this is going to be predicated on the fact that you can see and visually distinguish colors from existing. And assuming that you can do that, one of the primary underlying principles here is that those colors carry some kind of intrinsic meaning or effect. Right. And those meanings, the meaning is either based on that learned experience or biologically innate meanings. They didn't really get into super detail about what biologically innate meanings mean. Like I, I would imagine when we get into like how the colors might influence your behavior, we'll see more of what that might look like. But I think it makes sense to say that maybe a color does have a certain learning history with it. And maybe it's paired with certain events and certain either reinforcers or punishers, things that we like and all that at some point in time. I mean, there's a whole reason why when orange and brown and yellow show up that everybody loves pumpkin spice, right? Right? Yes, and I th- <laughs> you're you're almost giving away the fun part of this, so I'm going to stop you there. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, continuing on with the principles here, because we've described that the idea here is that color carries meaning that there's some kind of biological process that is involved in this, and the fact that you can perceive it, that you are able to interact with by visual stimulation, if you will, specific colors, that that has this automatic and voluntary trigger for you and that carries with it an evaluation that you will react to without any thinking like it's an automatic thing you see yellow and you automatically have some kind of reaction to it just by virtue of the fact that it entered your eyeballs Right. And this evaluation, this automatic process creates what's called color motivated behavior. And essentially what that's saying is that color influences behavior automatically. It it is an innate process. It is an involuntary process. You cannot control it. You tend to react based on the colors that you see. And I think one of the most important parts here is that the meaning and effect of the color have to do with the context in which you contact that color. So, and we'll come back to this more, but where that meaning comes from is contextually bound. Right. So I know you're asking the question. Everybody's asking the question, what do different colors mean? And thankfully, we have 
some uh, like kind of a key that will tell you a little bit about what color signal. And so you can kind of look at corresponding behaviors related to whatever these meanings might be. So we're going to go through a list of a just general colors. We're not going to get into like aquamarine or mauve, but we are going to talk about like just specific general colors that people see. So the first one is pink and pink typically means romance, calmness, nurturing. Those are three common meanings that are related to the color pink. And then do you take the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> I don't which one was the one that freedom was it the red pill? I feel like it was the blue pill. And I feel like there was a, a specific reason for that, but I don't remember now. I think it's the red pill because I think that the like I think that there are people who are like QAnon people that are like, oh, you just got red pilled because you like are awake to the real world. I think the red pill got co-opted by the alt-right. Nope, you're right. I looked it up. It was it was the red pill. And mm. so that became the metaphor for I guess, discovering the underlying truth of things, which is ironic when it, the truth is then a conspiracy theory, because that's really living inside of a giant blue pill in this case to just to, yeah. to keep hitting this metaphor over and over again. It's a whole thing. So anyway, we were talking about the color red, right? That's how I got off on that tangent. Thank you. <laughs> so red carries with it the meaning or the effect of anger, warning, dominance. And I think wrapped up inside of all of this is passion. Like you'll see kind of a theme as we go through these colors where it's like there might be conflicting meanings and we'll get into more of that later. Like I feel like nurturing and romance or calmness and romance might be a little like they're not quite the same anger and passion. I could see that those could be the same, but not quite there. They, they probably evoke different behaviors. So, yeah. And you'll see this too, like with the color brown, you'll see nature strength. I love the idea of brown signaling strength because that's why you'll see a lot of furniture stores have brown in their logos right that's part of this whole thing but also isolation right the idea that you're not really around anybody hmm. you can climb these bookshelves and they will not collapse <laughs> for blue the meaning is calmness productivity and sadness it's kind of weird to have those all together but the last one is definitely true if you've ever been out on the ocean yeah i believe that it's horrific <laughs> yeah although maybe yeah maybe fear yeah if you've seen the deep blue sea fear exactly yeah, fear for sure yeah fear of what's that ll cool j line bluest deepest my hat is like a shark's fin oh yeah 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 something like that yeah anyway that's a call back to a song that we didn't need <laughs> green talks about means nature luck and safety cool purple royalty imagination mystery actually interestingly one of my favorite restaurants that's a locally owned place their logo is purple and white it's almost all purple hmm that's interesting. Yeah. With the detailed sort of drawn in in white. Right. Well, and it's funny, too, because like green, like you see a lot of vegan places that are signaled with like a green logo somewhere like there's green in there. Like there's just a lot of green. I, see, I feel like with a lot of vegan places. Right. So that's all about nature and maybe safety from harmful foods. There you I go. <laughs> Man, we're taking a lot of stances today. I apologize. All right. So orange happiness, enthusiasm, attention. <laughs> I like that you phrase that as a question. <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> yellow you have attention energy and brightness so attention is both yellow and orange i mean that makes sense they're similar tangential if you will yeah they're close enough and light i think is another one yeah black would be like mystery unhappiness power and that's why you know when we talked about abraham's shirt in the beginning i referenced mystery and power that's right because it's black yep. <laughs> for those who can't <laughs> for those who are listening with their ears and not with their eyes so i see that black and blue share the unhappiness slash sadness element here yeah which is funny because like i wear black t-shirts all the time and it brings me so much joy yeah i agree and we will dig into that and then finally we have white this is when we're talking about 
light wavelengths. This is a combination of all the colors, and this signals peacefulness, emptiness, purity, and cleanliness. Of course, white does. This is definitely coming from a Eurocentric point of view, I think. <laughs> yeah, if you didn't glean that just from that couple of phrases, then you need to study history a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, this is ridiculous. Anyway, what's your favorite color, Jane? So my favorite color is blue. I've always loved blue. And I actually tried to think about this as I was putting together the episode. I can't pinpoint why at any point in time blue became my favorite color. Like I tried to think back to like the Ninja Turtles and Raphael was my favorite and he had the red mask. Like I never really liked Leo. I thought he was kind of a nerd today. I like Donatello more and he's purple. So that's not even the thing. Like, you know, I like him cause he's a scientist and I honestly can't think of anything that would pinpoint why blue is my favorite color. Interesting. Yeah. I just Googled to look up the most popular favorite colors in the United States and blue is the the top one. Oh, there you go. Maybe because it's the last, like when you offer somebody choices, it's the last in the array. So like if you ask somebody like what your, what your favorite colors of the flag are, red, white, or blue, everybody just picks blue because it's the last one. Recency bias going on here. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're such a conformist, Shane. What's your favorite color? My favorite is green and I actually know why, and it is because I have always loved being out in nature, and it's that color of like leaves and trees that mm -hmm. I just love being around so much. And for the very same reason, my second favorite color is brown, actually. Oh. Because of like the trunks of trees and sort of like the earth and like a forest floor sort of thing. So those are my two favorite colors because those that's sort of my my tranquil, happy place. That makes sense. You know, I, I thinking about that, like, I guess green should be my favorite color because like I like to go to the beach and the water here where I'm at is not really blue. It's like kind of like a deep green, like a sandy green kind of color. It doesn't really have that deep blue that you would expect an ocean to have. And so I can't even attribute it to that. I Maybe the sky because I was at the beach a lot and the sky was always really blue here. So yeah. I don't know. It's got that oil slick green to it. Yeah, but like it's like a healthy oil slick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not like a dirty oil slick, you know? It's not like a BP oil slick. Sure. So let's, let's dig into some of the pop psychology angle on this, shall we? Yeah. So this is where you'll see how some of this idea of color psychology is embedded in kind of our everyday stuff. And the first one we want to start with is this idea of placebo pills. So when you look up placebo pills, which you can go on eBay, by the way, and order SIBO caps. I, I learned this. You can order bags and bags of SIBO caps, yeah. which are just sugar pills. They come in a variety of colors. They usually come in blue, green, or red. And it's reported that these different colors are used to treat different ailments. Because if you're not familiar with a placebo is, it's just a sugar pill that's used to kind of trick your mind or trick you into thinking that there's an effect, right? And actually, teaser, we have a, we are going to be doing a discussion about placebos very soon. Yes. So we'll, we'll illuminate on that issue coming up. But the idea is that it tends to not have an effect by itself. It has like a different kind of effect. So anyway, it's reported that red works better as a type of stimulant or energy related needs. Like for somebody who has like an energy issue or energy deficiency, it's supposedly effective for that when you use the color red. Perfect. And so then if your placebo cap or your placebo pill is green or blue, that's more commonly used to treat mood disorders and depressive states. If you're feeling blue, take the blue pill and then you'll feel even bluer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's that song by Eiffel 65 or whatever it is? I'm blue. No, thanks. All right. So the effects may vary based on the person's learning history, social norms, things that are related to those colors, maybe people that are influencing them. Like, so like I said, we're going to get into that when we get into the kind of the real science behind this in a little bit. Yeah. That's kind of one of the key points there. So 
We'll come back around to it. Yeah. As we've talked about already several times, color is frequently used in various types of marketing. And so color is used to create brand recognition. So, for example, what color is Coca-Cola? It's red. And polar bear. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite color, polar bear. That's right. Interestingly, and probably not unintentionally, similar to Christmas colors in that way. Yeah. But then you've got the competitor, very interestingly, of Pepsi, which we often think of as being blue. And I've seen research multiple times now that have suggested that in blind taste tests, people prefer Pepsi to Coke, but Coke outsells Pepsi every year, like hands down. And so very interesting that that's the case, but that is how people tend to choose. And it's possible the colors have something to do with that, you know? And you'll see this too. Like, you know, we've talked about like Coke being red and Pepsi being blue. You'll see blue in other places too. Like you, you see it often found in nautical products like boating and pools and stuff like that. You'll see yellow for outdoor stuff. Like when you start looking at sunscreen or bug spray, my favorite sunscreen is called Sunbum. And it's bright yellow and it has like a brown, like a, like, cause it's the, their, their mascot's a gorilla. So he's a, this big brown gorilla with these big sunglasses. And so, um, and it works so well for my delicate sun kissed skin. <laughs> Great. And you'll see brown for constructed items like furniture and architecture. You'll see that used a lot in those spaces. Except in Ikea where everything is white. And also everything has to be built with a single Allen wrench. <laughs> yeah. And the furniture is white too. Just yes. So. <laughs> hi so the idea is that some colors mean different things and provide a stronger motivation for purchase which is as we talked about what is supposed to be implied by the context of those colors when you see them and so that's that's used for the marketing yeah so like if brown means that a product is strong and furniture is brown you're more likely to buy it because it will last longer right like it's going to be really like that's the kind you want strong furniture you don't want to look at you know i don't know orange furniture that commands your attention so we're going to go hard on orange, by the way. <laughs> Apparently. So that's why I only buy brown pants. Exactly. They're, well, also, they're comfortable. Exactly. All right. If red means warning or danger, then you probably won't want to buy a boat from red's perfectly aquatic catamarans because <laughs> it's giving away the secret of when you buy it. Like, you're going to sink. <laughs> yeah. And you'll see that. I mean, I can't think of living in a town where the ocean is so apparent, like, and there are are so many like boating and tackle and all these places that like are for fishing. Like, I can't think of any of them that have like red or any other color than blue somewhere in their logo or even in like their just anything that's there. Like, it's just really the more I thought about it, I was like, wow, I really they really do have such a handle on marketing. You know, I feel like I would try I would paint a boat red specifically because when I'm out on the ocean and, and inevitably need to be rescued, I want to be as visible as possible. And I think something right. red would stand out really well. Right. But, you know, everybody's got their thing. Blue is safer. So now color is definitely used in politics as well. And you'll see this a lot. I found this really interesting as we were kind of going into it because you're most often in the United States, you'll see blue and red, right? Like, and you'll hear like the blue wave or a red tide is probably the way that I would start pairing maybe a certain political party because, you know, bacterial infections and all that stuff i'm kidding i'm kidding (laughs) but the idea is that you know you'll see the idea of blue used a lot in campaigning and so it's often used during campaigning or to relate to blue collar workers and candidates will wear light blue and roll up their sleeves to chat with us common folk so you'll see that a lot when they're going to meet with like everyday people they're doing town halls they're usually wearing blues calming colors something to be able to relate to folks right and I remember being interested in high school thinking like, whoa, they like 
they'll spend so much money and time and effort going through designing and choosing colors exactly so that they they can make their voters think this certain thing and be more likely to vote for them. And we'll get into why that's not going to work very well. But just to continue on with the different colors, if you have black and gray in politics, those are used during times where authority or power is necessary. So trying to convey the importance of having an authority figure. And the lighter the shade, the more approachable the person is supposed to be, or that's at least what's supposed to be indicated. Yeah. And then, you know, on the other side of that, you'll see the color red used and it's most often found in ties. So you'll see that color used when somebody's wearing a necktie or something. And it usually is is used to signal something more aggressive, maybe passion or assertiveness, maybe somebody who's not going to back down. That's usually kind of what is often portrayed with the color red. It's meant to be kind of like a very forward, like an offensive move, even in the idea of politics. And if you have somehow managed to avoid politics up to this point, red in the United States, at least, is usually associated with the conservative or Republican Party here. Yep. All right. So brown in politics, again, implies being down to earth. And yes, down to earth. (laughs) (laughs) That's specifically what I when we were going through it. I was like, that's exactly it. Just down to earth, grounded, like very calm, very like on our level. Right. Yeah. Relatable, I think, is another way of thinking about it. So sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then purple signals wisdom or guruishness. And purple is often associated with religion, spirituality, as well as royalty. There was some controversy about Obama wearing a purple tie one time. Like, you know, just that's the kind of stuff that, you know, people like to harp on. And again, in politics, this often is also used to suggest states that are sort of equally liberal and conservative. So there's a blend of left leaning and right leaning people that suggests that rather than being blue or red, that it's purple. Absolutely. It's pretty interesting to see how this is all signified. Now, let's get into the actual science behind this, okay? Because I think you know, we've kind of hinted at it as we've gone through, but I think it's important to really get into the idea of why people prefer certain colors or why people do certain things in the presence of certain shades. So most reports of behavior change based on color appear to be anecdotal. And that's where you'll start seeing studies. It's like mostly reported like maybe through customer surveys, through customer satisfaction surveys, through restaurants and things like that. And these preferences for certain colors elicit certain emotions or feelings in the observer. So they particularly respond to these colors because of some kind of tie or relationship, some kind of emotional relationship to that thing. Yes. And this is where I think the important relevant content is. In 2007, Elliot and Meyer note that there is little in the way of evidence or support for the use of colors or color in psychological work as a therapeutic tool. And so they did an experiment in which they used the color red to evaluate behavioral and performance effects. And they noted that there was a slight effect on behavior of participants after being exposed, but they also noted an avoidance of the task or decrease in performance. And I think there is... It's relevant to look at where colors carry meaning. It is not inherent to the color. And Elliot and Mayer in 2014 go further and they indicate that color carries important psychological implications specific to meaning. For example, red as a warning sign that may be commonly identified as meaning as the meaning for the color. So you'll see the color red based on maybe experiences with that color, right? Like if I see a warning sign, if every warning sign is red, then When I see red for a task, I'm probably going to avoid that. Specifically, think about how often you see the color red when it comes to stop signs, right? 
A stop sign means, or red lights, that means stop or you're going to get hurt. You're going to get into a car accident, right? Something bad is going to happen if you don't stop at this moment. And so it makes sense what they're saying is like the idea of color carrying psychological implications specific to meaning is important based on how that person has experienced that color. Yes. Another article, O'Connor in 2011, evaluated the use of color psychology and color therapy. And in this article, they indicate that there is little to no evidence supporting the influence of color in therapy being an effective therapeutic tool. So there you go. At the end of the day, what you find is that color is not the mechanism by which behavior change occurs. However, we do, again, as always, want to take that behavioral approach. And we've said this multiple times, but ultimately what it comes down to is an issue of learning histories related to that color. If you get certain things that you like in the presence of a color, that color is going to take on those properties of that thing you like. It's going to start signaling that thing you like. If something bad happens in the presence of a certain color, then that color is going to take on the properties of that bad thing. And you don't want to contact anything that is that color. So for example, if you get food poisoning at McDonald's and all you see is red, when you're throwing up everywhere, you're probably going to have a hard time with the color red. You're definitely going to have a hard time with the with McDonald's in general, but the color red is going to take on some new properties that it might not have taken on before. Also, if you're seeing red while you're throwing up, you should probably go to a hospital. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a real serious problem. I mean, this is everything. This is really the whole thing because these firms, the research firms and these marketers will put so much money into figuring out what colors are going to evoke the right response and the right behaviors. And what's unique about this is their utter and complete lack of orienting to the fact that they create those associations themselves. So, for example, like we grew up around these fast food chains that have been around longer than we have, that have been using these colors for as long as they have. So any association that we have with those colors having meaning with respect to like food and restaurants and that sort of thing is because they've been used so ubiquitously as a signal for food and restaurants. If you look across other cultures, different colors carry different meanings in different cultures. So for them, food might be very different colors. You might have like orange and or, or I mean, orange is common in the United States, but you might have purple and you might have greens and you might have stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being related to food in a Eurocentric culture. But that <laughs> despite what many would have you believe, we're not the only culture in the world. <laughs> Shocking. And so... The idea of chasing after these colors to see what effect is this having on people is kind of asinine, in my opinion, because it's like you create the association you want to have with those colors. And so, for example, there's a brand of tool that you can get at Home Depot, and most of the tools there have like reds and a lot of grays and some blues a little bit in there. And then there's this one brand that's like this sort of off green sort of color. And I initially found the color extremely off-putting, but the tools were inexpensive and they were sturdy and they worked really well. And so now I see that color and I actually immediately think, oh, that's good quality. I do want that thing. And whereas I was used to seeing like oranges and yellows and stuff like that in some of the tools, now I'm looking for this this bright green color because I, I associated that with the brands that I associate with quality. And so like... It had nothing to do with the colors themselves. It had everything to do with my history of contact with those colors. I mostly grew up around colors that had this sort of brownish, orangish, reddish colors and that sort of thing. So seeing green tools was kind of weird. I just really hadn't encountered yeah. that before. And then they work great and they don't cost very much. And so like that 
then led me to have to just shift that experience. And so that's and the same thing is true with politics here is like the color you choose for your logo, like it is going to have an effect based on what people's history is, but you build awareness of that brand and you build association with what people react to by how you then present that color in conjunction with the person or the platform. And it becomes less important about the actual colors that are used and more important that people can make a strong connection with those colors to something relevant about those colors, which in this case might be the political candidate or the platform that they're running on. And so that's why I think it's always useful to highlight this is that it's not to say that there's no reason to use these colors or that they might not have any effect. The point is that the effects are what we make them. And so you can have the colors be anything. Now, that being said, there is some really interesting research I also stumbled upon. Uh, Interesting. It's kind of common sense, but there are some interesting features of color psychology I stumbled upon when we were prepping for this episode. And one of them, as they point out, is actually that the idea of contrast and also considering accessibility to people who have visual impairments like color blindness or certain types of color blindness. And so red and blue are very common. But there are actually lots of different types of color blindness where other colors are. And so you might specifically choose colors that are going to be the easiest for people to distinguish when they're looking at a sign. For example, if you put a color text on top of a color background and the person who's colorblind has a very difficult time distinguishing those colors, it'll look essentially like a blank sign to them because those colors will blur together. And so you want to choose colors that have high contrast. And the higher the contrast, the easier it is to read. I mean, again, fairly straightforward. Right. There are also colors that are more or less complementary or opposite one another. So, for example, in this article I was reading, they point out that red stands out really well against blue. And so if you have a blue background, red text can actually be a way to have them be clear. Although, again, if you have someone who lacks the cones in their eyes to be able to appropriately distinguish red and blue, that might not work very well for them. But nevertheless, the point being that you choose colors that are as distinct as possible so that they are as clearly read if you are trying to send some kind of message. So all of this is to say, like, there are practical reasons for choosing colors, but the final point just being here, that, as I've already said, is that the, the associations and the effect that those things have are purely cultural and based on everyone's context and experience with those colors, and those things can very easily change over time. To illustrate that point, you, I mean, you said it earlier, like people prefer the taste of Pepsi. Coke just has better marketing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's all, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Like the thing is, is Pepsi is fine. I, I mean, I don't drink a lot of soda. I drink, if I drink soda, I drink Mountain Dew, which the color of Mountain Dew in itself is a whole thing. People are like, that's radioactive. Right. But ultimately the reason we asso- associate red and we start thinking about like places like Atlanta, which, you know, has major Coke factories, like what are the colors of Atlanta? Like the Falcons, the, their football team is black and red and white, right? So like they lean heavily onto that. And so you start making all these other associations related to it. So it's pretty interesting. Now, there are a couple other tidbits that we want to cover as we as we wrap this up. And the first one is Cohen in 2012 conducted a study to identify humanity uh, humanity's color preferences. Like, so what do people actually prefer? Blue was the favorite, like Abraham had mentioned, among both men and women. But for men, it was reported that the next favorites were green, purple, red, orange, yellow, and pink in that order. Now, for women, it was determined that the next favorites were, it was started with blue, and then it was purple, green, red, pink, yellow, and orange. So my point proven there nobody likes orange 
<laughs> the other point that we wanted to kind of the, the interesting thing too is the idea of this this color called drunk tank pink and so the idea is that there were some studies that were done about the effects of using this this specific color pink in cells at police stations in different places where people were having to sober up after a really rough night of drinking so they were finding that the cells that were painted this specific like kind of pastel colored pink saw less incidents of individuals who were inebriated engaging in more aggressive or dangerous behaviors. They found that they were calmer. They were easier to manage. They were easier to get out of that situation. They were easier to just really kind of keep from hurting themselves. And so they attributed the color of this drunk, quote unquote, drunk tank, this color pink to these changes in behavior. And so there were all these studies that came out like, oh yeah, we saw this effect. But again, that's not really the mechanism by which behavior changes. So it has to do with that learning history and those individual learning histories. So we'd want to look more into detail about that. But it's pretty interesting. That's where the term drunk tank pink comes from. They utterly failed to consider the fact that they gave everyone a few hits of the bong on their way in. Yeah, everybody was so stoned and drunk when they walked in. That was why there was less aggression. So. <laughs> I mean, possibly. I mean, po- yeah, I, you've never heard of somebody who is like just really high doing something ridiculous. I'm obviously kidding. And just like, yeah, yeah. It's a joke, folks. Yeah. Come on. All right. Take home points. Yeah, let's do some take home points. So the primary take home point that we look at here is there's little evidence to support the use of color as a means to change behavior in terms of just its inherent meaning or colors having meaning by themselves or any sort of like biological process by which colors have some kind of genetic impact on human behavior. There's little evidence to support that that even exists. Yeah. And I mean, the influence where it does exist definitely relies on learning history and not anything innate about the color. And I remember back in some of my grad school days, there were some people who were interested in doing like, well, we need, we use colors to signal certain things so that when we have clients or patients or individuals who have a very low capacity for language, which is to say, we can't just describe something to them and they don't necessarily understand it because they just don't have very much language developed then we can signal it using some kind of color. But then they got all interested in this idea of like, well, what if they prefer certain colors over others? And I immediately was thinking it doesn't really matter because they're going to respond to whatever the, the contingency, whatever the outcome, whatever the effect is that you have in place with respect to that color. And they'll pick up on that. And like any preference they might have is going to be very weak in its influence here. And although colors, like we've described, they're often associated with things that are just common, like red is commonly associated with food. There are other features about that other than just the colors that we respond to, the shapes, the logos, the hues, what that color is on or next to. So it's like there's there's not just like red flags randomly hanging whenever you walk into a McDonald's. They're also contrasted against other colors and they have particular shapes that they go with. And they're usually around an image of some piece of food. And so those are also contextual features that we react to in an important way. So I think that's that's my main take on point is just, again, the I think to say that succinctly, which is what I should have been doing since we're doing take on points. The point is. The association we have with colors are the associations we make and we experience through our context and history. And I couldn't wrap it up better myself. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Perfect. Okay. Anything else on on colors then? Sorry for folks who love orange. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I mean, we understand. We just don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I think Shane feels more strongly about this than I do, but that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, I shouldn't be making sweeping generalizations about our podcast. 
Oh, I did have one quick interesting tidbit thing I wanted to share yeah. real quick. Sorry, I almost forgot. There was a study that was done on the influence of kinesiology tape color, the color of kinesiology tape. You know that like that stuff that athletes will sometimes stick to their skin mm-hmm. that has no evidence whatsoever to support that it has any effect on their performance, that stuff? Yeah. Anyway, there was a study that was looking at the influence of the particular color on athletic performance. That was actually a thing that was done. And suffice it to say, no, <laughs> because kinesiology tape already does nothing and changing the color of it is going to do nothing also. I mean, unless you put chemicals in the glue and, and the, that are going to sink into your skin and get into your blood. In that case, it will definitely do something, but maybe not the something you want. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably that would probably be super effective if you really like LSD. <laughs> yes. Or uh, tinctures. I like the term tinctures. So like you can go to like a dispensary and you can get a tincture. I was just looking up, I was curious about your your dislike of orange, and according to this color wheel blog that I found, it says that blue is considered the opposite of orange, so it makes sense that you would dislike orange. If anything, uh, I'm consistent. Yeah, so <laughs> there you go. Well, also too, I can't stand orange because I don't like the Gators. I think I know why I don't like orange. I don't like the Gators, the Florida Gators. I was always a Seminoles fan growing up. You know, the Gators are blue and orange, so uh, it's a sports. Th- they bastardized my favorite color. By pairing it with such a nonsense color. Got it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't really hate orange that much because I do like oranges. Like oranges are good. My favorite thing is though, in sign language, the word for orange and oranges is the same. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. I think that's enough of a tirade for now that <laughs> we can transition yeah, yeah. to some recommendations. Yeah, let's do it. Recommendations. My recommendation is a book by an author named David Sedaris. Have you ever read anything by David Sedaris? I have not. Okay. So his latest book is called Calypso. And he is like kind of a short story writer that does this really good job of tying these themes together across his stories. Like, and most of the time he writes about his family. If you remember the show on Comedy Central that existed for a little bit called Strangers with Candy, the actress Amy Sedaris that was in it. Yeah. It's her brother. Oh, okay. So he's this writer and he's written all these books. He's written like Barrel Fever and Me Talk Pretty One Day. And they're all these true stories of like just his travels and his observations of people. So the way he writes is kind of like how a behavior analyst would think and he has questions like a behavior analyst would think but he just writes these funny anecdotes about his family and some of them are really funny and touching like he talks about his family going to japan and loving this horrible store where he keeps buying these horrible awful clothes and him and his family just like live in that and just have like all this joy around it but then he'll talk about like how his one sister committed suicide and trying to wrap around like wrap his head around how to deal with it and he has this really dark humor about it he wrote this really great story about the situation and how people identify it's called now we are five or something like that you know talking about how when people talk about their families and they say like well how many kids do you have like well it used to be three now it's two or something like that and he would say like well we used to there used to be six of us and now we're five and so like it's it's really touching the way that he writes about it and and it's not insensitive in a way it sounds like it might be off the cuff like that but it's just the way he writes is just really clear really fun really dark humor really pointed and just a lot of fun so I recommend just reading anything by David Sedaris. He's just great. Cool. I do want to say that you made a recommendation a while back of a game called Among Us. And I actually heard from some listeners who apparently took that recommendation to heart and have gotten really into it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's, It's so much fun. It's so dumb. Yeah. Well, very cool. I thought that it'd be useful for you to have that as feedback. So. Oh, well, thank you. 
Okay. My recommendation is an author. His name is Phil Zuckerman. And I've only actually read one of his books, and it's called Living the Secular Life. So it's it's nonfiction. And it is just, even for people, like wherever you fall on sort of the religious spectrum, I think he is very, the reason I, I like him so much is he writes in a way that is very kind. He doesn't, he's not tongue in cheek. He's not insulting. He just says like, this is what I found. This is what I believe. And in that book in particular, he actually conveys a lot of his experience surveying random people from random cultures about sort of their beliefs. And he asks people about who are religious, who are not religious. And, and he talks about what that sort of means to different people. And it's like probably the most like positive, uplifting secular books that I have ever read. Hmm. I know he's got a lot of other books, and so I'm recommending him as the author, but the, the book that I read specifically that I enjoyed was called Living the Secular Life, and I thought he was just a really good read. All right. I'm adding him to my list. Sweet. All right. If you are a color, or if you have favorite colors, or if you feel strongly about colors and how they are used and things, then let us know. We are happy to share those with other people. And if you are a David Sidaris reader or Phil Zuckerman reader and want to share some of your favorite of their writings, then also let us know and we'll share those as well. And if you have anything else to comment about this or any of our other episodes or would like to learn more about this or any of our other episodes, feel free to reach out to us on any of the social media platforms or at our email. You can find out more about these at our website or Google stuff. You know, it's a good way to find information anymore. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's fine enough. I think don't get your information from Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. But otherwise, go out and and read some books. Yes. Books are cool. Also reach out to us on, on those platforms. And anyway, thanks for recording with me today, Shane. Thanks for listening to us. And I think we'll see you next time. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.